How many of you usually, uh, during the summer months, take vacation and travel outside the city of Erie? Raise your hand. Some of us, some of you. Um, How many of you have gone on vacation away from what you would call your hometown, uh, several hours away, and and more or less that you would have to pack because you're going to be overnight, you're going to be away for a long time? How many of you have done that before? Pretty much all of us. You remember those times of packing up the car? Remember you go out to the van or you go out to your car? You've got all your luggage packed. You pre-packed the night before. You're uh, kind of looking around the house, the last minute things, make sure that the dog is taken care of or the cat has enough water, enough food. Make sure that you got everything packed in in case you got the kids. You got to make sure you have the right things for the right kids and the right age, the right toys. And then you always think, okay, did I get gas? Do we need to stop and get gas? Do we have enough money for tolls? We think about all those things. We get our GPS out. We set our GPS. We make sure we rehearse over the directions that we got from Google. And we got the map off the Google Maps. And we make sure that we go through each step so we know where to turn and we know how far and which way we're going to turn next after we get a certain distance. It seems as though everything is perfect according to plan. And as we're backing out of the driveway or pulling out of the driveway, we just kind of chuckle to ourselves and we mutter under our breath, what's the worst that could happen? Ma, I saw some detour signs. I didn't see any. I saw them when you and Mom were trying to fold the map. Audrey, when they close the road, they put up big signs like this one. Check under the hood. How many of you are eager to go on vacation now? You know, it's so funny. As followers of Jesus, we're on a journey. And our journey takes us different directions and different destinations. Sometimes where we end up in our destination is not where we imagined we would end up in the end. And sometimes the reason for that happens two ways. The first one is, is because we made room in our lives to listen to the Holy Spirit and God redirected us. We paid attention to all the signs along the way. We saw the detour signs, and instead of getting worried, we were at peace, and we followed the direction they were headed. We saw where it says, road closed ahead, so we stop, we wait, we listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. We get the new directions, and we chart the course. And then there's those times, the second reason is because we end up in a different place, is because we weren't paying attention to the signs. And we end up getting off the track, off the road, in a different destination. And we end up somewhere where we shouldn't have been in the first place. And then we ask God why. But if you think about this, a lot of times when we chart our course, a lot of times when we travel physically to a destination when we're going on vacation, and something happens, we run into car trouble, we get a flat tire, something happens that we run out of fluid, more than 90% of the time, 
we don't look at that in that situation and say, oh, well, I guess we're going to turn around and go back home. We don't do that. A lot of times we try to figure out how we can fix the problem right then and right there so then we can proceed to the destination that we have mapped out, that we have charted before us. Why do you think we do that? It's because we know what is ahead of us. We know what is, is waiting for us at that destination. We know that what is going to be there when we arrive. And so we have this eagerness and this desire to continue to move forward regardless of the roadblocks that lay ahead of us, regardless of the car trouble that we are encountering. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the spiritual road work that is ahead of us in our lives as we journey with Jesus. For those of you who have been journeying with Jesus for a long time or a short time, you begin to notice that, yes, we are on a continual journey, but we are always going to encounter some form of roadblock, rumble strip, slow lane, one-way signs. And how do we handle that when we encounter those things? It's critical for us as followers of Christ to comprehend this and remember this in our journey with Jesus, that what God starts, he's always faithful to finish. He's not the kind of person like us. He's not a human being like us. He is the king of the universe, the Lord creator of the world. He understands what follow through is. He understands what commitment is. Now, some of you are a little offended at the moment because you say, now, wait a minute, I'm a committed person. I follow through. That's great, but let me tell you what. There will always be times in our lives as human beings that we will not commit properly or we will not follow through. That's why we can't save the world. That's why there is only one who can do it because he understands faithfulness and he understands commitment and he understands follow through. And he's the only one who has the authority to say to us, what I told you that I've started, I am definitely faithful to finish it. The beauty is, is that we have to learn that Jesus will guide us through the slow lanes. He'll guide us through those blocked roads. He'll redirect us through those detours. He'll tell us when to slow down like those rumble strips before we end at a construction point. He'll even maneuver us around the potholes in Erie. Because he wants to get us to where we need to be. See, sometimes our perception of God is that He's the nasty construction worker on the side of the, the road that puts all those signs and narrows us down into one lane and slows us down on purpose to get us from getting us to the destination that we want to go. But the reality is, is he knows what he's doing just like those workers. There's a plan, there's a purpose, there's a reason why those signs are there. And a lot of times we get frustrated with God just like those workers on the road. And we sit there in our spiritual journey, in our little spiritual cars, and we just, <sighs> it's July. Don't they know that people are going to be on the highway going on vacation? <sighs> we sit in our spiritual cars and we say to God, God, don't you know I got this great destiny ahead of me and you're slowing me down. I got to get there right now. Just like the workers. 
God knows what he's doing. The Apostle Paul understood this. In fact, you would consider Paul to be a nomad or a traveler of the faith. He was very, very well schooled in traveling because one of his intentional goals was to travel from city to city, make disciples, and then plant a church. That's the biblical model that we see. And we see that he went from place to place, and he not only made disciples, and he not only planted churches, but somehow Paul always found himself in a place of persecution. It says in 2 Corinthians that this guy, Paul, suffered 39 times being whipped. Literally, physically being whipped with a whip for preaching Christ. It then says that he was shipwrecked three times. Imagine being on a carnival cruise your third time, and that that third time it wrecks. He says that I've known cold, I've known nakedness, I have known what it means to starve and be without food, I know what it means to be without drink, I know what it means to be without a place to sleep. And I thought, if anybody has authority to say, what's the worst that can happen? It's got to be Paul. But the beauty is, is that Paul teaches us something so critical about this journey of maneuvering through these roadblocks. I would consider being whipped 39 times, shipwrecked three times, no cold, no heat, uh, experiencing cold, no heat, no food, as well as being stoned physically with rocks. I know, it's unfortunate. Nowadays, you've got to make a clarity between the two. <laughs> but I look at him, and we see his response later on in his letter to the Philippians, which we're going to get there in a minute. But he helps us to understand that we need to start at the end of our journey and work backwards. Now, see, this can be pretty hard for us as followers of Christ because it doesn't make sense. When we leave our homes to travel to a destination, we start at our homes. And then we arrive at our destination. We never end up at our destination and then travel back to our house as to where to end. But remember, there's nothing logical about God. Everything is illogical with Jesus. He said, if you want to be the first... Move to the end of the line. If you want to work your way up as a leader, get down on your knees and wash the feet of those in need. That doesn't make sense to us. And then he turns to us and says, if you want to advance in your destination, then go all the way to the end of the journey and start there and work your way back. Why? Because God's already been there. God has already taken up residence in our destination. He's already there to meet us. He's already worked everything out. And he's waiting for us to start there and to work our way backwards. Now that can be hard for us, especially if we're circumstantial people. If we're dramatic and dramatized all the time. If we're the type of people who move and play off our emotions. It can be hard for us to try to start at the end and work our way back. Because we can't get past the circumstance. We can't get past our emotions and how we're feeling. And we love the drama in our lives. There's some of us, I'm sorry to say, but some of us live for the drama. 
God does not create us to live for the drama. You know what living for the drama is? It's a replacement for the Holy Spirit. When we hang on the circumstance of the moment and we allow the drama and the emotion to build up in our lives and we can't see past it, it tells us that we are depending more on ourselves and the drama and the adrenaline it brings us than we are depending on the need of the Holy Spirit. And it becomes a replacement in our lives. If we're going to travel together and reach our God-breathed destination, there's a few things that we need to know to help us get there. First, we need to realize that a great ending affects motives. A great ending affects motives. See, the definition of a motive means to have a reason or a desire to accomplish something. That's what a motive is. Now, when you go to work every day, for those of you who work outside the home, you go with a motive. What is your motive? What is it? To make money, absolutely. For the mothers who are stay-at-home, when you wake up in the morning, I believe staying at home is a full-time job. When moms wake up in the morning and you take care of your children, what's your motive for getting up? To take care of your children, absolutely. That's a motive. We have a reason or a desire to see something accomplished. You see, a great ending will determine the motives within our hearts and within our minds. The question is, as followers of Christ, is what is the motive behind what we do? See, with Paul, it was pretty easy because you could tell what Paul was motivated about because the way he talked, the way he thought, and his actions. If you want to know as a follower of Jesus what your motive is into what we're called to do, begin to examine your thoughts. Then examine your speech. Then examine your actions. That will tell you what your current motive is. Paul clearly understood the great ending which directed his motives. Look with me in in the book of Philippians. We're going to start in verse 12. He says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of envy and rivalry, rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So here's Paul. What's the worst that can happen? He ends up in jail. But not in a detrimental way. Because we read Paul's response. He says, no matter what happens, the worst that can happen, the great thing is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. Moments ago, when we corporately stood there and we sang that song, declaring that Jesus is Lord, 
declaring that we are alive because of Christ. I thought about Paul and his motive because he saw the final end in sight, that he was able to say, Christ is Lord, we are alive because of him, and the least that we can do is tell the world about him. And I got to thinking, wow, what if, what if I was in jail right now? What would my motive be? To get out? To get free? To see my family? Or would I have the motive of Paul to say, while I'm in here, how can the world know Christ? That word advanced that he talks about in the Greek means to make headway in spite of blows. So instead of filling himself with his own selfish motives, Paul begins to see the big end in sight. And he says, yeah, you know what? I've hit some roadblocks. I'm chained to the palace guard. And you know what? Yeah, I've taken a little bit of detour because I'm in jail. And I've hit some speed bumps along the way, and God's kind of slowed my journey down, but I've been following the signs and listening to the Holy Spirit. And yes, I ended up here. But I'm going to make the best of it for Christ. See, for some of us, we're looking at our current circumstance, our current situation, and we can't get past the roadblock. We're scratching our heads. We're looking at other directions on other maps that are not the word of God. We're fiddling with our GPS instead of taking a moment to listen and breathe because we want a quick way out. We want a quick delivery, a quick deliverance. Instead of sitting there and listening to the Holy Spirit, opening up the map of life, the word of God, and saying to the Lord, Okay, God, I'm at a dead-end road. Where am I supposed to go from here? Our motives influence others. Our motives influence others. Paul's motive to continue to preach the gospel tells us in the book of Philippians that it sparked boldness within the body of Christ to move out beyond their boundaries, to lay fear aside, a couple of years ago when I first gave my heart to Jesus and I accepted him as my personal savior, I had a real zeal within me. I had a real passion to tell everybody about Jesus and what Jesus did for me. So I thought it would be a good idea to grab a bunch of people together, like-minded, who had the same zeal and the same passion and the same intensity for Jesus. And I was going to go out and share Jesus with everybody that I could find on the streets. That went real well. So we go to this place in the middle of this town that we are talking to people about Christ. And we decide we're going to go to every door in the neighborhood, knock on every door, and tell people about Christ. So we go to our first house, we knock, and the people answer. So we start telling them about this plan of salvation, this message that Jesus has for them, and why he came to do what he did. That went well. Then about the fifth house, something changed in the street. When we turned around from the door that we were facing, we noticed that there was a large group of teenagers with rocks. Not like little pebbles. I'm talking like rocks. 
okay? With hockey sticks and with baseball bats. They weren't there to play sports. So we turn around, and you got to understand, there's like seven or eight of us. And we turn around, and I realize at the moment that they were ready to beat the snot out of us. So I turn around, and I'm trying to remain calm as my heart is racing, and I thought, you know, they must be able to see the movement in my shirt because my heart was so racing at that moment. I felt as though I had moved my heart into my throat. So I turn around to them trying to keep everyone calm. I'm like, okay, guys, here's the plan. Jesus was persecuted. We can do this. (laughs) We're going to keep going to every door in the name of Christ. Just ignore them. They'll go away. So we walk to the next house. Now, you got to understand, there's a crescendo happening. And it starts with some very vulgar words as we're on the sidewalk walking. And this group is following us in the street as we're walking down the sidewalk. And I keep saying, just look ahead, just look ahead, just look ahead. Above all the obscenities. So we get to the door. And we start knocking on the door and the individual answers. As we begin to talk, the crowd of teenagers begins to escalate in their verbiage. And it is overpowering what we're trying to say. So they close the door. And I'm standing with my back to them and I look at one guy. You look, where are they at? And he said, well, they're a little closer. So I said, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to go tell them about Christ. So we walk up to them, and I remember them closing in around us, and the one kid steps forward, who I think was like the ringleader, and he steps forward, and he looks at us, and he says some obscene things to my face, and at the time, I was wearing glasses. He said some things to me, and he says, in essence, you just better get out of here before we really beat you up. And I looked at him, and I said, well, Jesus loves you. Here was his response. Big old green nasty loogie right in the center of my left lens. And it just hung there. And I looked at him and I just said, thank you. We're just going to be on our way. And as we, because that wasn't enough, and as we were walking out, they started to throw the rocks at us. I remember being pegged in the back, in the leg, on my foot, the base of my neck. And I thought to myself at that moment, is it really worth going through this for Christ? And then one of the other students said this to me. He turned to me and he said, you know, Jason... The way you just handled that, I don't have any fear of them. Let's go back because what we have is greater than what they have physically. Let's go back to all the doors and start to knock on those doors and tell people about Christ. The motive in our hearts influences others to continue to pursue. Like Paul, others were drawn with courage instead of fear. 
regardless of where we're currently stranded or blocked or lost, we must realize that the present circumstances are part of a divine strategy. And the way we handle those circumstances will influence others around us in how they will learn to handle those same blockages. The second element that we need to grasp in this journey is that living for Jesus produces joy. Not just any joy, but a supernatural joy. Our eyes have to be trained to look deep with joy below the surface of the current situation that we're in. See, if we continue to look for joy on the surface of where we are at and become circumstantial, we'll lose our joy every time because it's temporary. But when we come to the sign where it says, road closed ahead, and we begin to look deep for the joy that God has set before us there, we will see differently than what we currently see. So I lost my job. What's the worst that can happen? A few, day, a few months ago, <clears throat> my sister, who was uh, told months ago that she had been completely healed of cancer, she went back for a checkup. And the doctors said to her, cancer has returned. And it's through your whole left leg, the whole outside skin of your intestines, the inside of your intestines, into your pelvic area, and it's climbing up from your lower back and up. You only have so long to live. Of course, our family was devastated. But when we sat down and we talked with, our, with, my, with my sister, she's a follower of Christ, and with boldness and simplicity, she just looks at us and she says, so I'm losing my life. What's the worst that can happen? I've got Christ. So what's the worst that can happen to us? If we begin to measure our circumstances by a surface-type joy, we'll never make it. See, breakthrough occurs when we encounter the joy of God in the most difficult circumstances. Somewhere in the midst of my sister's most difficult circumstance, she's encountered the joy of God. Yeah, she's sick, and she takes medicine, but she hasn't missed one beat. She'll tell you she's tired, and she's in pain, and she's worn out, but she hasn't missed one beat. And I'm the one in the family who will ask her and say, hey, listen, you can let your guard down. You know, you can cry in front of me. We can talk through this. If you're scared of facing death, let's just talk through this now. And she said, honestly, Jason, she said, I am at the most peace I have ever been in my whole entire life because I know that God will take care of my family. And I have discovered a joy that is far greater than what is here on earth. Let's look at what Paul says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives to true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no longer, that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage 
so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Did you catch Paul's excitement in this? I mean, you got to understand, like, the whole understanding of what prison was back then. They weren't watching TV and having meals given to them. They didn't have time out in the yard to exercise. I've been in Rome before, and I actually visited what they believed to be was actually Paul's cell in Rome. It's not what you think. It's not like some old steel bars. You actually start up top and you see the hole that he would have been lowered down into. Just a hole in the floor made of stone. It's about just wide enough for a human being to like fit through, probably scrape their arms and their shoulders on the way down. Then there's a path that has been chiseled and made to go down and around so you can actually go into the cell. And in there, you actually, for some, you would have to bend over because it's so short. No electricity. Now, you got to understand, they put electricity in there for you to see. The floor of the cell is totally uneven. No drain. And it wasn't very huge. And here I stand there in the midst of that, thinking of this man who had no light, chained to two prisoners, probably spent the majority of his time sitting on his butt because he couldn't stand up fully, writing this letter to the Philippian church of saying, hey guys, what's the worst that can happen? (laughs) At least the gospel of Christ is being preached. What's the worst that can happen? Because I see the end result. I see the destination in sight. Yeah, I'm in chains. Yeah, when I go to the bathroom, I can smell it for days. Yeah, when I eat, it looks like a really bad mixture of oatmeal and cream of wheat. But who cares? What's the worst that can happen? The destination that lays before us is far greater That word deliverance means that he had every reason to expect spiritual victory to be his. Church, we've lost that anthem. We have lost that anthem in our heart. The anthem of deliverance. I'm not talking about deliverance ministry. I'm talking about deliverance that we have this expectancy within us that spiritual victory will be ours no matter what we face. We have lost that anthem. And we must regain it. For some of us, we have lost that anthem in the midst of our sickness and disease. And we look at it, and we don't have the heart to sing anymore because of what the doctors have said. 
Somewhere along the line, my sister gained that anthem back. And we may not be physically healed. But man, talk about the spiritual victory that we will have. You lost the relationship. Just imagine the spiritual victory that you will have. You lost your job. What about the spiritual victory that you will have? Regain the anthem of deliverance. Don't surrender to depression. Don't surrender to hope deferred. Don't look at the signs that are around you that say road closed ahead. Don't worry if it says detour. Don't say if it says slow down. Don't worry if it says one lane. Surrender to Christ. See the destination ahead of you. Put your dependency back on the Holy Spirit. Because living for Jesus produces joy that runs deeper than the surface of what we see. One of the greatest verses I believe that were ever written in the book of the Bible was what, Christ, what, was what Paul says about Christ right here. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was a joy-filled, unshakable statement of faith. And when we're in the midst of our circumstance, are we able to say for me, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because that's what is at the end of our destination. You see, the way we engage the joy of God is to live in the present and the future. We lose our anthem's cry when we live in the past. When we live emotionally and circumstantially. Two weeks ago, I had this intense revelation. I went to Sarah and I said to her, I am tired of living for the now. I am tired of worrying about the now. I have lost my focus on Christ. And I'm going to regain it. I have been complaining. I have been whimpering. I have been a sissy as a follower of Christ. I'm tired of wasting my time on earth. I realize my time is short. I realize that we have a mission. I realize I have neglected it. I have repented. I have asked forgiveness. And now I am moving forward. She looked at me. And she says, I understand. Now, church, you may say, Dude, you are just too intense. We're not intense enough. Church, we must shift our focus. We must shift our focus. If we are to make it to our God-breathed destination, we must shift our focus and be filled with the joy of the Lord. Understand what our motives are. Otherwise, we will never make it past our roadblocks. Finally, the other thing we need to know is that our salvation proceeds our courage. My father-in-law is from Italy originally. He was born there, raised there, 
Then he moved here. Travels back a lot. In fact, he just got back from Italy. He has a very deep heart for the people of Italy to minister there to them. One thing about my father-in-law is he has this thing called dual citizenship. It means that in Italy, he is not only recognized as a citizen there in the country of Italy, but he is also recognized as a citizen of the United States. Now, this is hard to come by. Because the only way you can get dual citizenship is if you have a direct bloodline from that country. And you live in another country. So my wife can be a dual citizen because she has a direct bloodline with her father. I cannot be. Because I have no connections to Italy, or what we call the promised land. It's really flowing with milk and honey. See, Paul talks about this thing, salvation, and I can't ignore it because it's in the word, and that's part of our final destination. When we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, meaning that when we realize that we are sinful people, that we miss the mark, and that we can't do it on our own, we come to this place that we submit to Jesus, and we say, I realize that you are the only way to eternal salvation, to live for eternity. I realize that when this body dies out, it'll be no longer of any use. And I realize that I will go to one of two places when I die, that my spirit will reside. One, heaven, or two, hell. And the reality hits our hearts and we say, I don't want to burn in hell. I want the reality of heaven and I want to live in this heavenly place. Now, a lot of times we accept Christ out of the need for fire insurance. Now, when we get older in the faith, we don't like to admit that, but it's the truth. The reason we accept Christ initially is because we don't want to burn in hell. But as we grow in relationship with Jesus and we journey with him, we begin to realize it's more than hell. It's about spending eternity with the King of Kings. And so we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we believe it in our hearts. We ask for forgiveness of our sin and we repent. Meaning, we were going this way, we no longer do. We go this way, we go away from what we are pursuing to pursue Christ. When we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, we get dual citizenship. We have citizenship of heaven and we have citizenship of earth. But here's the catch. We need a bloodline. We need a heavenly bloodline to connect us. We can't do it on our own. See, there's some of us in the body of Christ. We want to be residents of heaven. We don't want to give up our residency here. Because we like the benefits of this residency. So we toy around with our dual citizenship. We like the benefits that Christ offers us in that place of residence. But the benefits of this residence speak so much louder. Stop messing around with the bloodline. Quit it. It's serious stuff. Salvation is a serious thing. 
It's not to be taken lightly. And if you want citizenship in heaven, you have to realize that this is temporary. And you want to keep that bloodline connection. Now, let me tell you this and how this responds to our courage. In the book of Philippians, if you study the Greek, Paul talks about this salvation of Christ, but he follows it up with courage to the followers of Jesus. See, back in those times, because of emperor worship, you battled between two allegiances. If if your allegiance was to the emperor, you had to deny Christ. If your allegiance was to Christ, you had to deny the emperor, and that was treason, and that meant death. Paul comes along and reminds the Philippian church and says, don't forget what comes with salvation. Persecution. See, back then, if you were a follower of Jesus, this is how it was explained to you. You want to know Jesus as your personal Savior? Yes. Okay, do you understand this? That when you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you repent of your sins, you ask for forgiveness, and you accept Christ as your personal Savior, not only do you receive eternal salvation and residence in heaven, but do you understand that you will be persecuted for your beliefs? Do you understand that you will be, uh, you will be accused of treason because you have neglected the emperor? And do you understand that you will die? Yes. Let's do this. Sounds a lot different from today, doesn't it? You want to accept Jesus? Yeah. Oh, great, awesome. Just say this little prayer with me and everything's going to be good. And then, now now excuse me and how I say this, understand how I say this, but when all hell breaks loose in our lives, then we're standing here like, what happened? I thought I accepted Christ and everything was going to be a bed of roses. And when hell comes hunting for us, we don't know how to respond because we have lost the meaning of salvation. You have to be courageous to be a follower of Christ. It's not for the weak-hearted. You want adventure? Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You want to be a man or a woman, a real man or woman? Then accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can climb... Mount Everest and Mount Kilimanjaro and record it and be all this, that I'm a great hiker. You can fly and bungee jump and skydive all you want. That doesn't make you a man or a woman. What makes you a man or a woman is accepting Christ and having the courage and the boldness to understand that you just might face persecution. You might die for Christ. But we've watered that down. We don't tell people that you might die for following Christ. We're liars. Don't call me a liar. I tell people about Jesus, right? But are you telling them the fullness? This is why Paul talks about courage. When we begin to understand the plan of salvation... We need courage. Look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. See, the other important thing about salvation is is that it gives us a real destination. As human beings, we're taught that our goal or our destination is our career, our vocation. If we can get that college degree, nothing wrong with that, but if we can get that college degree, we've arrived at our destination. If I can just get married, I've arrived at my destination. If I can just accomplish that one goal of winning that marathon, I've arrived at my destination. No, 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 no. Those those are little compared to Christ. See, when we accept Christ as our personal Savior, we're given a new destination, a destination that matters, a destination that trumps every other worldly destination that we have bought into. And it produces a courage within us, a courage to wait on the Spirit. When we arrive at the sign that says, Road Closed. A courage to stand firm. When we take a detour and we don't have a slightest clue where we're going, but we're following the signs of the Spirit, that takes courage. But not only that, it proves that the message of Christ is real. That's what Paul is talking about. See, suffering is a gift from God. Suffering is a gift from God. That's what Paul tells us. Look at somebody and say, I have been blessed with suffering. Now, some of you right there, you copped out. Some of you are those faith people. Don't speak it, brother. It's going to happen. You obviously didn't meet Paul. Paul tells us that we are blessed when we suffer. But let me tell you something. The body of Christ has become sissified. Because we run from the suffering. Now understand what I say by this. Suffering draws us deeper in intimacy to God. Because we have nowhere else to go. Suffering blesses us because we grow spiritually mature. Suffering is a gift from God because it causes us to grow deeper and begin to rejoice at deeper levels than what we have ever been willing to rejoice at before. That's why suffering is a blessing. But somehow along the way, the body of Christ as a whole, we have sissified the gospel of Christ. And we want the easy way out Follow Jesus, man. It'll all be good. Don't worry. We don't suffer. The most we get is told that we're Jesus freaks. And we run from suffering. Or else we blame it on the devil. 
and we say, oh, this is an attack from the enemy. Maybe you should just chill out and listen to the Holy Spirit a minute and realize maybe it's God slowing you down because suffering is a blessing. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a reminder that we are citizens of a spiritual realm and we are ambassadors because we represent the kingdom of God. So the way we conduct ourselves when we are at a standstill in spiritual traffic, the way we conduct ourselves when we come to a spiritual roadblock will influence those that are around us. And we want them to be able to look at us and say, they must be citizens of heaven. They're not citizens of here. Finally, he says this, contending as one man. In the Greek, that means to engage together in an athletic contest. See, let me put it this way. For followers of Christ, regardless of the roadblocks that you are facing, regardless of how many rumble strips that you have passed over and decreased in speed to the destination that you know God has put before you, let me say this. What's the worst that can happen? Here's why. One, we start at the end and we work backwards. Two, our motives will affect our outcome. Three, are we really filled with the deep joy that Jesus provides for us supernaturally? Four, do we have the salvation that prefaces our courage to continue forward even when it's hard and it doesn't look good. And five, we have each other to take care of one another even when we're at a standstill. What's the worst that can happen? Would you please stand with me? I'm going to pray a prayer for you. I believe that when people pray, things happen. So I'm asking you, are you prepared for things to happen in your life? Some of you believe that. Okay, that's good. That's all I need. Jesus said two or more. He is there. I'm going to pray a prayer for you. And I really believe that things are going to begin to happen in your life. I believe that the acceleration of God will happen in your life at his right timing. For some of you, you've been at a roadblock for years. And I really believe God's going to open the roads. Some of you, you've been traveling too fast. And God's going to place some rumble strips in your life that are going to slow you down. Some of you, you have tr trouble really listening to the Holy Spirit and following the signs that he gives you. And you veered off a couple times, but I'm going to pray that the discernment of the Holy Spirit will increase in your life so that you can see clearly spiritually and hear spiritually where he's directing you when you see those detour signs and that you are obedient to the call.
So you can put your hands out as a posture to act as receiving this. Keep your hands in your pockets or whatever, but I'm asking that you don't move from where you're at until I've said amen. As a sign of reverence and respect to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we stand here declaring that everything begins with you and everything ends with you. Father God, we declare over every single individual in this place, within the sound of my voice, that what you have started in each one of them, you are faithful to finish, to complete, to bring to an end. And Father, I declare that where the voices decide to come against that promise, that you will shut them up and remind them of your faithfulness, Lord. Father, I declare that those who have been on a spiritual detour and have gotten off track, I declare an increase in their life of the voice of the Holy Spirit and a heart set for obedience, that they will respond out of complete obedience to follow the signs that you give them from the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for those who have been at a standstill for years, where there has been a block that may not have been created by you or that maybe has been created by you. I pray, Lord, for the proper timing that it will begin to open up and make way for them. And Lord, I pray for those, Lord, that you look at and you simply say, as a father, you're going too fast. You need to slow down and take your foot off the pedal. I pray, Lord, that in your timing, you will lay down the rumble strips that are needed so they can slow down, see what's ahead of them, and prepare themselves for what is to come. Father God, I pray for all of us who are on this journey that we will rise above in joy, that our motives will be corrected by the Spirit of God, and that we will have the courage that Christ had, the courage that Paul demonstrated living and breathing through us. Let the acceleration begin. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.